This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. Uh, for those of you that might not know me, my name is Kyle Corbertson. I'm the pastoral intern here at Trinity. Uh, Zach's actually on vacation for the next couple weeks, so y'all are stuck with me. Um, but he'll be back in a couple weeks. It's getting back to see family. Um, and I'm excited to be able to be here to open up and to continue in our study of 2 Samuel. Uh, we've seen up to this point that things have been going really well for David. It's almost as if he's living in a Disney story. Things just keep getting better. He's gone from the wilderness to become the king of Judah, ultimately the king of Israel. God makes a covenant with him in chapter 7. And we'd really wish that they would just end there, that there'd be a happily ever after, things would get better. But unfortunately, the Bible's not like Disney. Uh, we hear of moral failures, we hear of problems, and they're meant to expose our own hearts, our own problems, our own sin. The only difference in our lives and the lives and what we read in the Bible is typically our perspective. See, often when we read these stories and we read of David, we're able to see from God's point of view. We're given this narrator's perspective. We're able to see the pitfalls that are coming even before David does. We're able to see his faults and his sins even when he doesn't see them. And we're able to see what God is doing. But the problem is in our lives, we are stuck like David. We've got limited perspective. We've got blind eyes. We don't see what's going on. We don't know God's plan. And so we don't know what we don't know. We don't know how blind we really are. We don't see everything that's going on. And so we're going to see this morning as we read a famous story, or the end of it, of David and Bathsheba, we're going to see David's failures come because of his blindness. We're going to talk about how David doesn't see his own problems, David doesn't see God's goodness, and then yet, despite both of those things, God still sees David. And so I invite you this morning to stand with me out of reverence for God's word as we read uh, from 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 22. And reading through chapter 12, verse 15. It says, So the, messengers went, the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to tell him. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city. The one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had to come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, by the, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. So the first thing we notice here is that David doesn't see his problem. He doesn't see his own sin. The reality is that the the 21 verses preceding this in chapter 11, David has gone and coveted his neighbor's wife. He has committed adultery with her, and then he's murdered her husband to cover it all up. He just broke three of ten commandments, all within 21 verses. And yet we see by his response to Joab, he only says, do not let this matter displease you. He proves to be calloused towards his sin. He seems unconcerned with the taking of the life of Uriah. He seems unconcerned with all the sin in his own life. And the reason for that is because for David, it's no longer an act. Sin is not something that he has done in this moment, but it's become a lifestyle. David doesn't understand that his sin has been woven together for years before this. Our New Testament passage this morning in James told us that sin begins when we're enticed by our own desire. It says, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. David's sin here has become fully grown. Nobody sets out to become an adulterer and a murderer. No one says, that's what I'm going to do in this moment. David, years before this, probably says what all of us would say right now. I could never do that. I could never go that far. I could never become that person. But these choices continuously giving over to his desire over God's law led him to this point. We see it beginning all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 25 when he chooses to take Abigail and Ahinoam as his second and third wives. Then we see him continue to make this choice time and time again to the point of 2 Samuel 3. We're told he has children by six different women that are not his first wife, Michael. Just two chapters after that, he finally takes over in Jerusalem. He's king over everybody, and he takes more wives and more concubines. As David continues to amass this great harem of wives, the reality is he's not just made a harem, but he's also knitted together a veil that covers his eyes to his own sin. It's not problematic to him anymore. The more that he drifts away from God's law, the easier it is to transgress. David goes time and time again choosing his own desire. And he can't see it. He sees nothing wrong as a king staying behind during war. Instead of fighting with his people, he sees nothing wrong with him wandering out on his rooftop idly. He sees nothing wrong with when he sees a beautiful woman taking her for a one-night stand when she's someone else's wife. And he sees nothing wrong with covering up his sin when she becomes pregnant and killing her husband. 
David is so blind to his own sin. But even when David doesn't see it, we're told that the Lord does. It says that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and so he sent Nathan to confront David. Nathan shows up in a very interesting way. He doesn't show up and tell David, you've done this evil thing, you've been terrible, you've been sinful, but he shows up with a case for David to try. You see, David is the king, is the judge over the people, and he's supposed to decide these cases. And so Nathan makes up one. He says, David, there's a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man stole this man's sheep. The only thing that this poor man had, the thing that he cared so much about, has been taken from him. Nathan's giving David this example that in Hebrew law would require only a payment of four times as much. That's all this man would have to do to repay this. But David's righteous indignation builds up. His anger wells up inside of him and he says, not only that, because the man has no pity, he deserves to die. Now imagine David's surprise at Nathan's response to this, this statement. Nathan says, David, you are the man. Four simple words that are only two words in Hebrew, actually. This simple, small phrase cuts David to the heart. In that moment, David's eyes are open and he reveals how sinful he's been, how much he's become intertwined in all the sins of the past years. He realizes that he's gone further than he ever would have expected. And if you've ever been in this moment, there's this opening of your eyes where you realize, how did I get here? How have I gone so far, fallen to this point? Done something that I would have said years ago I never could have done. David was a man after God's own heart. He was a righteous king and a mighty warrior, and yet he has fallen this far. But without God's word, David never would have seen it. David was content to walk around in his darkness and in his sin. And it's only God's word that could expose what's really going on. To expose how he has sinned and transgressed God's law has hurt others around him. He needed God's law to show him how far he was drifting. And until God's word shows up in Nathan, he doesn't understand how far he's missed the mark. How much he's sinned. And that's what God's word is meant to be in our lives. It's meant to show us how we're supposed to live so we can tell that we're missing it. We can tell that we're missing the mark that is set. We can tell that our lives are not what it's supposed to be. It's hard to see unless you look at them side by side. Now I've realized this uh, as I'm trying to paint our house right now. I'm trying to figure out colors that match and you can't tell differences unless they're next to each other. Unless you really try. My daughter's room actually has a, a white like handrail thing. I don't know what it's called. Uh, around the room, and I know that it's white. And in my mind, there is one color that's called white. And so I went out, and I'm looking at paints, and I find one that I'm like, this is white. This is going to match. We'll be fine. Go in, start painting one of the rooms. And it's not until this paint has fully dried that I'm looking at it next to this handrail, and they are not the same color. They are not even close. There is an obvious difference when you look at them, but I never notice until they're right next to each other. I never notice until I'm comparing them next to each other rather than looking with my own eyes because it looked good and for David that's what his life has been filled with it's been filled with a life that is ignoring God's word and it's just looking at his own desires he said it looked good it looked fine to do this thing time and time again Adam and Eve the fruit looked good but if they had compared it with God's command they would have realized how far off it really was see if we don't take the moment 
to compare God's word in our lives time and time again, we don't see how much we're drifting slowly and slowly further away to the point that we can't even see the mark anymore. David has gone so far that his sin has matured and he's staring at death sentence, one that he himself has demanded. David is deserving of death, but he never saw his problem because he wasn't willing to look at God's word. But not only was he not willing and able to see God's word and see his own sin, he was also unwilling to see God's goodness in his life. Notice the first accusation that Nathan makes of him when he says, you are the man. He says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? God's saying to David, don't you get it? Don't you understand how much I love you? I love you so much, David, that I went and found you when you were a lowly shepherd. And I made you my anointed one. I loved you so much that I showed up every day in the wilderness when you were running for your life. And it was I that protected you. David, I loved you so much that I gave you the kingdom of Judah and Israel and I made you a king over a great nation. He says, don't you see how much I loved you? Don't you see how much I still love you? If this hadn't been enough, David, I would have given you so much more. Why would you choose to turn away? Why would you choose something else other than what I've given you? Why would you choose your own desires rather than a God who loves you? But David does. David turns away and desires what he wants rather than seeing how God has provided for him. And the reality is, if you're looking at God's goodness and you're really experiencing it in your own life, it's really hard to fall into those same sins. When you see how much God loves you, how much he's given for you, provided for you, redeemed you, it's so hard to do and transgress his will, to go against and do evil in his sight. If you were to take a moment and think about how much God has provided for you, through your breath, through everything you have, through your life, every morning you wake up, it becomes a lot harder to think about what you don't have in jealousy and covetousness of your neighbor. That new car that they've picked out. Oh, I just wish I had that now. But the reality is God's already given me so much. How could I ask for anything more? Or if you're thinking about how much God has redeemed you, how much he has forgiven you, how much he has gone to great lengths to make up for your sin, it becomes a lot harder to judge your coworker, or to get mad at your kids when they sin against you because you realize how sinful you are and how much God's love has covered that sin. Or how about when you just really are upset with your neighbor? It's a lot harder to give them a nasty word when you're really thinking about how much God loves you, how much he's done for you, how great your God is that he would love the likes of me. It's a lot harder to say something mean towards my neighbor rather than proclaim his truth. How great of a God I've got that he would love me so I can love you. It's only when we miss how good God is that we can live in sin and live in darkness and believe that everything's okay. It's only because David is living in blindness, only because he doesn't see the light and the truth of what God has given him. Because you never choose to live in blindness if you know there's something better. For those of you that don't know this, my wife Morgan, uh, who's not here right now, is 
has really bad eyesight. We'll put it that way. I think she's legally blind in one eye. We just got a uh, um, prescription for her contacts the other day, and it's negative eight and a half in one eye and negative 10 in the other, just to give you a reference point for those of you that understand those. Um, but she's always had really bad eyes. Um, but the funny thing about Morgan is she didn't actually get glasses until she was like the middle of first grade. And so there's a point of her life that she remembers not being able to see things. And she just thought it was normal. She just thought that every kid showed up in class, sat down, and couldn't tell what the teacher's writing on the board. Like, no one sees it. We're fine. We're all in this together. She just assumed that when she watched television that it was the same as a radio with just some fuzzy, blurry, colorful lines on it. She didn't know that there was actual pictures that people were able to look at. She didn't know the beauty of what's around her to its fullest extent. But imagine that day that she first got her glasses. The first day she goes back to school and she's like, I can read everything. Wow, this TV has cool pictures. This, this thing is awesome. Look at around us. Look at the blades of grass, the sky. Everything is so much more beautiful than I could ever imagine. Now, do you think Morgan went back and threw her glasses away the next day and said, all right, that was cool, but this is what life really is in the blurriness. Anyone in here that wears glasses is probably not choosing every day to throw their glasses in the trash before they walk out the door. To say, I don't actually need to see. I'm good where I am. You would never do that because you know there's something better. You know there is something that you can see that's so much better than the blurriness. And so when we realize this with our physical eyes, how much more should we realize it with our spiritual ones? Why do we so often choose to live in darkness, to live in our own desire, rather than experiencing the goodness that God has given us, to see how much he truly loves us, to choose to see the goodness all around us in our neighbors, in, in ourselves, only because of what God has done. God has transformed us, and God is transforming us every day to make us more like him. We are given such a good and gracious and merciful gift that we never deserved, and we are meant to share that with one another to love one another because God loved us first. And if we're living in that love, it becomes a lot harder to live in sin and darkness. But David chose not to. David chose his evil desires. And we do it too, don't we? We, so much like David, we time and time again fail to see how God loves us. We fail to see our own sin. We choose to transgress God's law. David did it here. Time and time again, in greater and greater ways. And yet the beautiful picture is that even when David doesn't see what God has done, even when David doesn't see his own sin, God still saw David. God was gracious in how he sent Nathan. Notice we said earlier that Nathan didn't show up in condemnation, saying, David, you've messed it up. It's time for you to die. You failed too much. But he shows up in a way that is meant to call David into redemption. He shows up in a way asking David to repent of his sins. He shows up in a way that shows David his wrongdoing in order for him to repent. And that is gracious because God doesn't need to do that. But that's how God chooses to confront David. He wants him to come to repentance. And we see him truly do it. When he shows up, David... His response to you are that man is nothing more than I have sinned against the Lord. Just a simple statement. And yet in this simple statement, we see the difference in David's heart versus King Saul's. This, con this 
conflict between these two kings, the differences that we've talked about time and time again, and it's what Samuel wants to show us. And we see it in this moment, in David's worst moment. We see the true difference in his heart. Because just like Saul, David has messed up. Both kings mess up in great ways. They both transgress God's law. They both willingly go against God's word. And they're both sent a prophet by God to call them out on their sin. And the difference we see is that when Samuel shows up to Saul's door in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul responds by justifying his sin, by making excuses, and by minimizing what he's done. We don't see any of that here with David's heart. David simply falls down on his face before God and says, yes, I did it. I messed up and puts himself at the mercy of the Lord. And while we only get a, a brief glimpse of his admission of guilt, we're actually given his prayer in Psalm 51, his prayer of confession before the Lord, asking for God's mercy. And while we don't have time to read all of it this morning, I invite you to do that on your own. I did want to pull out a few verses that give us a picture of David's heart in this moment. Praying to God, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David comes before the Lord falling at his mercy. David's repenting of his sin, and the beauty is that we are told in God's word that when we come in repentance, God is merciful to forgive. God will forgive our repentance, and so he declares through Nathan that the Lord has put away your sin, David. You shall not die. David's forgiven of his sin. He's acquitted of the death sentence that he so rightfully deserves. And yet someone has to pay this punishment. There is someone that has to die. Because sin demands it. God wouldn't be just otherwise. And this is where the passage really hits us in the gut, doesn't it? We really don't understand it when we read that the only person that dies here is David's son. I think for many of us, the temptation is to skip over those last couple verses that we read. I know it was my temptation this week to be like, ah, we'll just cut off at verse 13 and we'll feel good about it and go home. But it's good for us to read all of Scripture to understand that there are passages that are really hard. There are passages that don't make sense. Why did David's son have to die? Even though God has forgiven David, there's still consequences that go out from David's sin. And we understand that intuitively. We understand that our world is broken as a consequence of sin. That there are things that happen that are despicable and disgusting. But they happen because of sin. We're living in a sinful world. And when we come to these passages that are so unclear, we don't fully get an answer and we can't grasp what God is doing because we're finite and he's infinite, we have to come at them in a way that we choose to look at all of scripture together. We look at the clearest parts of scripture to define what the unclearest might mean. And so there's two things that we know for sure. One, we know that God is not vengeful. God is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love. And we have to understand that maybe there's a reality in this that God's plans are better than our own. And so maybe this is better. Maybe the reality is that this child dying in this moment is better than him growing up 
in David's household, a household that is now defined by blood and the sword. And we're going to see in the following weeks that it, for mostly that comes upon David's sons. All of his sons end up paying prices because of David's sin. This one's price is paid in this moment, and maybe that is God being merciful. Whatever the answer is, we don't know, and there's probably not an answer that I can give you that would satisfy how hard this passage is. But we know that God is merciful. We know that God is gracious. We know that his plans are better, and we cling to those truths. But the other thing that I want to be clear about is that this passage is not saying that David's son died for his sin. His son did not atone for his sin. I want to be clear about this, that if you've ever lost a child, it is not because of your sin, your spouse's sin, anyone in your family's sin, or anyone else's. There are things that happen that are inexplicable, but we know for a fact that this son of David did not die to atone for David's sin because he never could. But there is another son of David that did die and atone for his sin, and it's one that comes years later. The ultimate reason that Nathan can tell David that your sins are forgiven, you shall not die, is because the son of David that comes in Mark 10, when someone cries out, Jesus, son of David, this is the one that dies to forgive him. It's the son of David, the son of God, the son of man, the Messiah, and the Christ. He's the one that paid the price for David's sin in this moment. He's the one that died in order for Nathan to be able to tell David, you don't have to. In order for him to say that your sins are separated because by his wounds you are healed. And when we look to the cross, we hear the same thing. When God's word calls us out in repentance and we fall truly repentant, falling before his mercy, we are guaranteed his forgiveness. We are guaranteed his salvation. His blood covers all of our sin. We're able to look to the cross to confess our sins, cast ourselves on his mercy, and hear the words that Nathan spoke to David. You're able to hear this morning that your sins are forgiven. You shall not die. And that's what we cling to. And so as we close this morning, let us always remember that it's only by looking to the cross and by looking to God's word that we see and can repent of our sin in our lives rather than living in darkness. That we can see God's word showing us how faultful our desires really are. How full of sin we actually are and how in need of God's mercy we are. That it's only when we look to God's love displayed on that cross that we truly experience and know God's goodness. That we truly see his mercy poured out for us. So that we don't have to die. And it's only because God saw us first while we were still his enemies, while we were still in sin, God chose us and chose to die for us so that we didn't have to and so that we can live eternally with him. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we know that your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning that we are able to come and to do what we are made to do, to praise you and to worship you to look at you in your word and see your revelation to us. God, we thank you that we know that you are merciful, you are gracious, you abound in steadfast love towards your people, that you've given us your word so that we can know our own sin, but so that we can also know your goodness. Might we cling to your word this morning, to cling to what we know about you, God, even in the midst of hard circumstances in hard passages 
and in hard times in the world around us, where everything seems broken when we turn on the news, where everything seems to miss the mark that you've given us, and we long for that day that you'll make it all right. We long for the day when we can sit before you and ask you why all of these things are coming about. But in the moments that we have now, Lord, let us cling to your goodness, cling to your mercy and your grace through your word as we come together to praise your name for what you've already done, what you've already accomplished through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his worthy name that we pray. Amen.